Well, please uh, stand with me this morning in respect and honor of the reading of God's Word. This morning I'll be reading from Proverbs chapter 2, beginning there in verse 1, and this is the Word of our God. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasure to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you delivering you from the way of evil and from the men of perverse and perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perseverance of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgives the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her path to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the path of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteousness. For the upright will inhabit the land. And those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll look at that briefly, and then we're going to look at a lot of other scriptures this morning. So we'll start out Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Again, taking another shot at this idea of fearing God, which we find at the end of verse 21. Ephesians 5, verse 21, learning to fear Christ. Why does Christianity seem sometimes to be a religion of extremes? Well, it's because we tend to overcorrect. We might see someone where their left wheels are veering into the left ditch, and so what do we do? We jerk the wheel hard to the right, and next thing you know, we're veering into the right ditch. It's one extreme to the other. Michael Reeves sees this regarding loving God versus fearing God. He says that Christians have the impression that fear and love are two different languages preferred by two different Christian camps. The one camp speaks of love and grace and never of fearing God. And the other camp seems angered by this, and it emphasizes how afraid of God we should be. See, when we see and hear Christians talking about uh, our motive for obedience is only the love is love for God and never 
mentioning fearing God, we shouldn't totally reject the idea of loving God. We shouldn't say, okay, well, we're because they're going in the wrong direction, now let's never talk about love. We shouldn't resort to frightening Christians into obeying. But that's how we tend to... So we kind of go back and forth. And so if you respond to the, the Christians that are just saying, you know, you just need to be terrified of God, He's going to get you. And then we go all the way to the other extreme and, and only talk about love. And Scripture actually teaches that loving God is fearing God, and fearing God is loving God. There are two perspectives on the same thing, the proper attitude of worship. And by worship, I'm talking about worship in all of life, not just what we do here Sunday mornings, but everything in life and how we think about God and and bring Him to be the primary factor in everything we do. Proper attitude of worship. That's what Reed sets out to do or to show in his book, Rejoice and Tremble, the Surprising Good News of the Fear of God. This is one of the best books that I've read in a long time. And and I've over the last year, I've read it several times, and I will continue reading it over and over again. It's that good. It's one of those that just a few pages in, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be one of those that I'm going to read over and over and over. Kind of like Packer's Knowing God, one that I never can get enough of. And this one is now in that camp. It's full of quotes from Luther, Calvin, a number of different Puritans, and Spurgeon. And, and what he's doing is showing that while, and we're going to talk about today, this, this perspective on the fear of God, and this aspect of the fear of God, it can seem surprising to us. And he's trying to show that, well, you shouldn't be surprised. If you were reading Calvin and Luther and the Puritans and Spurgeon and others in the Reformed faith, you would have come across this. Because they actually write about it quite a bit. And so, he, with them, he takes us deeper into the fear of God. Deeper than we sometimes go. Uh, We tend to treat the fear of God as if it's one-dimensional. And it's not. He has a shorter version of this book. I haven't read it because I'm like, okay, this is so good. I want all of it, you know, but uh, they did. He did put produce one that's shorter called What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? And what we're going to do, what I want to do today is we're going to talk about a little bit of some of the things that Reeves brings out. We're going to look at a lot of quotes from different writers, especially Spurgeon and some Puritans, for example. But I want to we're going to spend a good bit of time at the end. Uh, where I want to show us how do we learn to fear Christ? How do we, or you could say, fear the Lord, fear God? How do we learn to do that? And and I've spent a good bit of time over well the last year thinking about that and making notes on it in anticipation of, of teaching this. And so uh, I want to add a lot from my own study about how do we learn to fear Christ to do these surprising and amazing things that these writers are going to talk about and and how it's all rooted in Scripture. All of this arises from their understanding of Scripture. And, and so we'll be in the Scriptures a good bit this morning. So we saw last week that the fear of God does have this aspect of a holy seriousness. And we can't lose that. And again, that would be like, you know, going, you know, from one extreme to the other to say it's only a holy seriousness, which 
in a lot of conservative churches, that's the way we tend to think. And that means that holy seriousness, it is a major part of, of the fear of God. It means that we must take our biblical duties seriously. So the ones that we find here in Ephesians 5, for example... Uh, where we looked at and are looking at verse 21, and then what we get into starting in verse 22, we have to take that seriously and not try to explain it away. But we're going to see today how the fear of Christ should produce a joyful wonder in us as well. So it isn't just this idea of that holy seriousness. It is that, but it's more than that. It also has joyful wonder built into it. And that This is going to sound different. It's going to sound strange to some of us as we hear some of the terminology that these writers use, especially some of the Puritans and even Spurgeon. Some of the the terminology they use sounds surprising. We don't talk like that. And I think sometimes we have bought into too much uh, Stoicism and and Victorian thinking, um, and we've purged a lot from our language, and, and that's unfortunate. But this is, it may sound strange because it's a distinct and otherworldly fear. This is not a fear that the world knows. Okay, they sometimes can get a holy seriousness. There's some religions that get that part of holy seriousness. And even some uh, previous ages of, of broader Christendom. They have driven that home, but there's more to it than that that makes us distinct or should. This can only happen as a product of the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit, which is what where we find this in the context. So, as I said, for the believer, the fear of Christ is not one-dimensional. Now, for the unbeliever, it is one-dimensional. It's terror, okay? That's what it should be. They need to be afraid because they're under the judgment of God. They're under His wrath. But for the believer, it should not be just the holy seriousness, that one dimension. Rather, it is multifaceted. And and so, as we said last time, the message for that last time and this time is this. The fear of Christ is a sense of joyful wonder and sobering awe at His majesty. And by majesty, I said, you know, this is all the wonderful everything about God. Okay, his power, his majesty, his his holiness. And we're going to get into some of that this morning. And we're going to see how this fear trembles with joyful, loving delight in God and his word. See, our God is not like any other God. And so our fear should not be like any other person's fear. Our worship should not be like other religions worship. How Christians do religion, if you will, it must be distinct. Spurgeon pictured the contrast as the unbeliever with a what he called a fleeing fear. And so as he thinks about God, the unbeliever thinks about God, he wants to get away from God. He wants to run as far as he can and as fast as he can away from God. But Spurgeon said that the believer has a seeking fear. Seeking in the sense of that he's running toward God. That even though he sees God in with that holy seriousness, he sees his power, his glory, his might, his uh, holiness, all of that. And even as he's, 
he sees that, okay, he is a holy God, perfectly holy, and I am a wretched sinner, though now I am saved by grace, I still sin. You think Isaiah, you know, holy, 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 right? But, even though Isaiah, you know, fell down, he didn't run away. You know, and when God, you know, when they said, you know, who will go for us? He's like, I will. See, it's a seeking fear. It wants to move toward God rather than away from Him. And that's a good picture that that Spurgeon uses there. Uh, Thomas Boston used a a little different picture. He said, for the unbeliever, it's a slavish fear. You know, he thinks of God as, okay, I'm I'm like a a slave before God. And and so I'm... uh, I see myself as a slave, if you will. And and that fear is the fear of a slave. A fear of, okay, you know, what's going to happen? Is my Lord going to beat me or whatever? But for the Christian, Boston said that it is a filial fear. You see, there's that we're his his sons and daughters. We belong to him. You see, he's our father. Yes, there's, there's an aspect of fear there, that holy seriousness. But... He's my father. So first, how how is it that we can run toward God if we fear him? In our minds, that doesn't really, that doesn't go together. And that's what we're going to talk about. So fearing God is equated with loving God. Fearing God is equated with loving God. Turn over to Psalm 145. We're going to look at this in a couple different shots this morning. Um, Psalm 145. We're going to see here, and I want you to watch for how he ties together fearing God and loving God. Okay, so Psalm 145, beginning or verses 19 and 20. Psalm 145, 19 and 20. Speaking of God, He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and save them. Yahweh keeps all who love Him. So talking about believers, they fear Him and they love Him. And what and what the psalmist is doing is that these are this just two sides of the same coin. Two perspectives on the same thing. Fearing God is loving God. Loving God is fearing God. He's using those loving God and fearing God as synonyms. And you can look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 5. You know, in that passage, we have that great uh, Hebrew Shema, you know, Hear, O Israel. So, in that passage, what, what Moses does is he ties together fearing God, obeying God, and loving God. Remember, you, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, mind, soul, strength, you know, your whole being you put into it. So that's fearing God. But it's also obeying God and it's loving God. Okay. Spurgeon explains this connection between fearing God and loving God. He says, when a man really receives the pardon of all his sins. Let me stop there for a second. So you're going to see this connection also with forgiveness. And we're going to come back to that again a little bit later, okay? When a man really receives the pardon of all his sins, he is the man who fears the Lord. This is clearly the case, for pardon breeds love in the soul. And the more a man is forgiven, the more he loves. Where great sin has been blotted out, there comes to be great love. Well... 
Is not love the very core of the true fear of God? You see what he's doing? He said that love is the core of it. So fear isn't this idea for the Christian. It's not this idea of terror where I want to get away from God. You know, I'm feeling, oh no, you know, that slavish fear. It is that love is the core of it. So fearing God is equated with loving God. Also, this is can be surprising. Fearing God is to delight in Him. Fearing God is to delight in Him. Turn to Psalm 112. Psalm 112, verse 1. And I think this is one of the ones I gave you to meditate on this week, along with Isaiah 60, verse 5. Psalm 112, 1. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who fears Yahweh. And then he says it just in another way, but the same thing. Who greatly delights in his commandments. And so fearing and delighting are the same thing. Okay? And we must see that when we talk about the fear of the Lord, that delight is a critical aspect of it for the believer. Right? Again, remember how it's multifaceted. And... The psalmist here ties not only fearing the Lord and delighting, but the Lord and His commands. Because you see, think about it, and Jesus is the Word. He's the Word of God. Right? The Word of God and, and, and the Lord Himself, they, there's that close connection because His Word comes from His very being. And so Scripture ties them so closely together. And so fearing the Lord... And delighting in his commands are really just two perspectives on the same thing. Okay. And in delighting in the Lord as part of our fearing him, in this we imitate Jesus. In Isaiah 11, it says there that Messiah will delight in the fear of Yahweh. He will delight in the fear of Yahweh. And again, it's kind of foreign to us to think about Fearing God, and a part of that is delight, or another way of looking at it is delighting in Him. But we're going to develop this, okay? Our delight in God and His Word should have an intense effect on us. Again, Spurgeon explained that this fear trembles with sacred delight. Think about that. It trembles with sacred delight. And so you can start seeing now that connection between fearing God and delighting, right? And of course, you could see love in there as well. But it trembles with sacred delight. That is the fear of God for the believer. It is not terror. This trembling is not terror, okay? It's not, you know, I stand before the throne of God and I'm just, oh, you know, is he going to get me? You know, is he going to say, oh, you're not holy and slay me? It's not that. It's a different kind of trembling. Let's talk about that trembling. So trembling happens, this particular idea of trembling. Trembling and, and fear, those words overlap. Okay, Trembling happens when we are overwhelmed by God's majesty, beauty, greatness, power, and we could go on and on. Trembling happens when we're overwhelmed by... God's majesty, Christ's majesty. When you meditate on it, you think on it, and you're just overwhelmed by the greatness of it. And the idea here is that the fear of God is the opposite of a um, 
a compassionless or a passionless response to God. You see, you think about how often we, we can read the Word. You know how you've read the Word plenty of times. And you walk away and you don't even remember what you read. You weren't affected by it. You know, you, you maybe even got bored you know, reading parts of it at times. And so this idea should challenge us. Uh, Reeves says, God is not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a good to be received listlessly. Seen clearly, the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. And, and, and so when we think about things like and we're going to talk more about Psalm 130, verse 4. You know, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And how often do you tie fearing God to being forgiven by God? You see, that, but the psalmist did, and, and these writers spend a good bit of time talking about that, and I'll come back to that. But, you know, so... Think about that. You can just some pictures. You you can look out on the starry sky on a clear night, and you see just the vastness of it, and the sheer beauty of it. And you're just like, hmm. you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and you're looking out across, you know, and it's just just blows your mind. But you're just like, yeah. Or you stand at on the beach at the edge of the ocean, and you see that that. I can't see the other side of this. This, this is kind of scary and beautiful and vast, and you're like, yeah, or whatever, you know. Or um, a groom sees his lovely bride coming down the aisle. Yeah, yeah. Okay, she'd probably turn around and walk away right about that time, right? That's not what happens. You see. Why is that what happens when we think about God? Why do we read His Word? And yeah, I know we, we don't go, eh. You know, you're afraid, you know, the lightning bolt come down, right? But why is it that we, we read it and we're unaffected? And why is it that we think about God, you know, and we, we, we sin and we say, oh, you know, Lord, forgive me. I sinned against you by and name the sin. And then we say, and we go on our way. And we're not moved by the fact that He forgives us. That He is faithful to forgive us. And, and how that doesn't seem to, to stir us and, and, and make us, as he says, as Reeves says here, to quake inside when we think about it. Again, Reeves, the fear of the Lord is a heartfelt quaking at the goodness and greatness and glory of the Redeemer. And godly fear is a startlingly physical Overpowering reaction. And he says that words like awe, even though those are, it's a good word, it doesn't quite capture the physical intensity, the happy thrill, or the exquisite delight of fearing God. What the, the scriptures talk about with fearing God. That you think about the fact that oh, He forgave me. I'm a wretched sinner. I sinned against Him again in the same way for the umpteenth time and He forgave me. And to be blown away by that. And on the inside, at least, to quake. And sometimes the outside will be affected as well. But at least on the inside, to be deeply moved by it. 
Let's talk a little bit more about what fearing God is before we talk about how do we do that. Fearing God is worshiping God. Psalm 5 verse 7 says literally, At your holy temple, I will worship in fear of you. That's the literal, in fear of you. So when you come to worship, so you you come to Sunday morning, and we're here to worship God in all the different ways that we worship Him. Do you think of fear? Now, hopefully you don't, if you're a believer, don't think in terms of terror. Because that's not what we're saying. But do you think of worship as fearing God? And then, now, hopefully, we're expanding our understanding of what fearing God is. We glorify God when we worship Him in fear. Puritan John Owen taught that the fear of the Lord means the whole worship of God, moral and instituted, all the obedience which we owe unto Him. You see, it's that life of worship. Everything in life is about God. My life is about God. And I need to live in a way that worships Him. That everything I do is like, will God be honored by this? Will I glorify Him in this? This decision, the way I respond to someone. Fearing God is worship. It is our highest duty. Puritan John Bunyan explained, I call it the highest duty because it is, as I may call it, not only a duty in itself to fear God, but as it were, the salt that seasons every duty. So you see, everything you do, if you have the fear of God, it's like you know, salting it and bringing out the flavor of it. For there is no duty performed by us that can by any means be accepted of God if it be not seasoned with godly fear. You see how essential godly fear is, what we're talking about. Right? So this isn't optional. And and so, and I meant to read again the passage from Ephesians 5, but... Um, Distracted myself, but remember that, that, that verse 21, as the, the fourth thing, uh, the result of, of being filled by the Spirit, where he says, in submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. It's not optional. We, we have to, he says, okay, in the fear of Christ, that means we have to take this seriously, right? So, As I mentioned earlier, uh, from my own study of Scripture and looking at how do we do this? How do we cultivate the fear of the Lord? Um, Because as I I read this book, and and this just builds on, or look at it another way, it goes deeper into the study we had six years ago on the fear of God. And... And so this is a way for me to, I feel like I've gone a lot deeper into it, into the fear of God. And, but, I, but I'm like, okay, I know I don't do it the way I ought to. How do I grow in that fear? And so I set out a study for myself first and then was looking forward to us getting to the fear of Christ here in Ephesians 5.21 and being able to share this with you all. So I want to share what I have found by looking at the Scriptures So how do we cultivate the fear of Christ, the fear of the Lord? First, meditate on God's Word so that it cultivates worship fear. 
Meditate on God's Word. So the first thing we come to here is God's Word, okay? Meditate on God's Word. Psalm 112.1, which we talked about earlier and read from. You see, it's delighting in His commandments is the fear of the Lord. Those are synonyms. Your goal is to experience great delight. Delight greatly in God's commandments so it cultivates worship, fear. This fear which has the the delight and, and all in it, even with the holy seriousness. But God's Word is central. His Word is central. Again, from Psalm 112.1. But think about, in Psalm 19, remember one of the things that David does there is he, he gives some alternate names to the Word of God. He talks about his testimonies and statutes and all that. Okay, But one of those, did you ever find yourself kind of scratching your head? Because he calls God's Word the fear of the Lord. You're like, I get the statutes and testimonies and you know your laws. I, I get that commands, but it's the fear of the Lord. That's because the word of God is central to fearing God. We have to understand His word in order to fear God, because it tells us why we should fear and how we should fear, what it is we should fear, who it is. Kevin read Proverbs two in the first five verses tell us about that, that it's in God's Word that we learn to fear the Lord. You see, it's central. This, and that's why I want us to start in our thinking with that. So take a long time meditating on each of God's commands, considering why it is good and delightful. And I'm not, I don't mean by that that, well, I'm only going to obey it if, if it makes sense. You know, so... Why should I? I remember in seminary, one of the profs was saying, you know, people say, we try to figure out, okay, why does it say in the law not to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk? Okay. And, and a lot of people, you know, spill a lot of ink trying to say, okay, what is that? Maybe it's this, maybe it's that and all. And he said, God says don't do it, so don't do it. You know? So I'm not saying, you know, we need to figure out what's good about, you know, this particular command, whatever command you have in mind. And so that I can... But that's not what I'm saying. You understand that the, the commands of God are good. But you want, you want to see why is it good? What is good about it? Not to motivate you to do it, but so that you can worship God and delight in it. You see? So that you find delight. It's not enough to just do what God's Word says. And so, we... We want to see how God reveals Himself and His character in it, how He expresses to us um, care for us, if you will. So as you do that, you, you meditate on it, you think about what's good about this command and what's delightful in it, and then stop occasionally to worship God for the good that you find in it, and then exhort your soul to take great delight in it. You know, why does He say... You know, at the end of First John, you know, little children, you know, guard yourselves from idols. Why guard from idolatry? And, of course, you know, the Old Testament talks about that a lot. Why? What's good about that? I mean, yes, we need to do it just simply because God says, you know, guard yourselves from idols. But there's so much good in it. You know, the first good is an idol does what? It takes my heart away from God. 
it puts something else or someone else in God's place. That is not good for me. As much as I sometimes will pursue my idols, and I'm speaking to all of us, you know, we pursue those idols, and we think that is what will be good for me, that is what's going to help me, it takes us from our God. You know, how good it is. And so, so something like that, you say, okay, Lord, I see how good this command is. I am willing to obey it even if I can't figure out what, why it's good. But if you help me to understand the good things about it, I want to delight in it. Because it came from you. From your good hand. You're a good God. And I want to see your goodness reflected in your commands. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 112.1. You know, delighting in his commandments. But you, you don't want to be unaffected. You, you don't want... To look at, okay, well, here, here's five ways that this, this command is good. Done. Okay. I did that. Check the, check that off my list. Stay with it until you're affected by it. Stay with it until you say, oh, Lord, you are so good. And, and hopefully it's some, some of the times where inside you just, whether it's a quaking or something else, you know, that you're just so deeply stirred by God and his commandments. Second, obey God's command. So you're talking about that one command, like guard yourselves from idols. Okay, now obey it. Reminding yourself of why that command is so good and purpose to take great delight in doing God's command. Take delight in doing God's command. So it's not a, you know, boy, God says I have to do this and I hate this. But I have to do it, so I'm going to do it anyway. No, not at all. Or I'm going to do it you know, just with, you know, completely passionless. You know, just going through the motions. Not at all. Find delight in it. Take delight in it. When you rightly fear the Lord, you will delight in doing His commands. And you will find, as First John said, First uh, John 5, 3, that they are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3, His commands are not burdensome. Now, I know that is not our first thought, right, when we think about commands. Whether it comes from our parents or the government or God, it doesn't matter. Our first thought is not, oh, they are not burdensome. You know, we, that's why we want to delight in them and we see, oh, God is good for giving us commands. And I can delight in those commands, Psalm 112, 1. And so, whenever I think, okay, guard yourself from idols, John, that I don't have to, oh, you know, I really like my idol. You know, no, it's like, yeah, it's not burdensome. My God gave this to me to keep me from turning away from Him and putting my, my affections on something else. This is how a godly wife can delight in submitting, as I said last time. A godly husband can delight in sacrificing his time and energy. And godly children can delight in obeying. And children, think about that idea of delight here. What is what we're going to see when we get to Ephesians 6? That it's the first command with a what? Promise. Yeah, it's the first command with a promise. 
And and so there's that aspect of, you see, God, it's like Paul has just given us one, right? He's just saying, okay, here here's a hint. Remember, I told you to do this in the fear of God. And oh, by the way, kids, when I say obey your parents, there's a promise in it. You see, that's the delight you should find in it. Third, meditate on God's character until you find great delight in each attribute. And I know you can't do this 24-7, but take time. And, and what I've done over this past year is I take okay, a, a command that I wrestle with. I wrestle with doing it consistently. Or I find myself kind of just, eh, it's kind of burdensome, you know, and I'm trying to correct myself, right? Take some time to delight in the command, but here, sorry, the his attributes. And sorry, I kind of got in my brain things kind of doubled over there. So meditate on God's character until you find delight in each attribute. Okay. Find delight in that attribute. So so pick an attribute of God. And and I've I've given you a few on the screen there and in, in the verses below it that though each of those is tied in those particular verses to the fear of God. Okay, so like the first one, wisdom, okay, is tied to the fear of God. So I want us to, to think in terms of take God's wisdom. Okay, how should I delight in that? And go to that passage and think about it, and and just stay with it until you you delight in it. You know, again, so it's not just this unaffected. Okay, yeah, God's wisdom, that's great. His holiness, that's great. But to delight in it. To be overwhelmed by it. That is the fear of God. So meditate on God's character until you find great delight in each attribute. Explore what is so glorious about that attribute. And then turn that back to praise, into praise to God. And then call your soul to delight in it. Do like the the psalmists and the Puritans picked this up from them, you know, to preach to your soul. So as you're doing this, and this is kind of a key. And you'll find the psalmist talking to their soul. And and so you need to do the same thing. Okay, soul, we just found why this attribute of God is so glorious. How, and so realize this. Realize the impact of it. Be overwhelmed by it, soul. Whether it be His wisdom, holiness, greatness, goodness, forgiveness. Uh, and, and there's, you know, obviously many more. Let's take goodness and as an example and talk about that so you kind of see what I'm talking about. So if you take goodness, explore how great God's goodness really is. And keep at it until you're overwhelmed by the magnitude of His goodness. So not just like, okay, I know God's good. Done. The magnitude of His goodness. Think about, okay, how good is He? How good has He been to me? How good has He expressed Himself to us in His Word? And see the magnitude of it. And then watch for an inner trembling at the vastness of God's goodness. And again, it might not look exactly like, you know, trembling on the inside, but it, there's that 
that impact. I mean, like Reeves used the I, the um, concept of you know a, a groom seeing his bride coming down the aisle. Okay, he's moved by that. Okay, on the inside, and and there's it's like you could say it as like kind of a trembling, right? Because it's like wow, this girl is coming down the aisle toward me to marry me, right? And all of us should be humbled by that and blown away by that. That some woman is willing to marry us, right? There's just that awe with God and, and being overwhelmed. That if we're overwhelmed by some of these lesser things, we should be even more overwhelmed by God. And His attributes, His goodness. Regarding God's goodness, John Owen drew this out. He says, To fear the Lord and His goodness, and to fear Him for His goodness, to trust in His power and faithfulness, to obey His authority, to delight in His will and grace, to love Him above all, because of His excellencies and beauty, this is to glorify Him. And see, he's tying all this in with the fear of God. And and it's that was from his works, uh, I'll talk about it in a minute, but where he's talking about forgiveness and the fear of God and forgiveness. So let's see this goodness um, in Scripture, how psalmists, uh, for example, uh, did this themselves. Go back to Psalm 145. Psalm 145 and... Here we're going to look at some of the beginning verses. This psalm is an excellent place to learn how to meditate on God and His Word, His attributes, like His goodness, so that we can grow in godly fear. And I want you to watch for David's wonder. Watch for the joy, the delight that he has in this as he fears God. Watch how he, he notices or he brings out the splendor of God's majesty, the, the amazingness of God's majesty. So Psalm 145, verse 1. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. And in your head, anyway, don't read, great is the Lord and highly. Great is the Lord and highly, greatly to be praised. That is how David means this, right? And his greatness is unsearchable. He's saying, this blows my mind. It's bigger than I can imagine. You know, don't read the Psalms, you know, just like, well, kind of rote, just, right? Try to hear the psalmist. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor. See, he's just piling words up. The glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wonderful works, I will meditate. See, there's that idea of meditating. That's where I get this, okay? Why we need to meditate on this. And men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. And I... And and actually, that word awesome... Is fearful, literally. Men shall speak of the power of your fearful acts. So think about the works of God, the acts of God as fearful. Okay. And I will tell of your greatness. Again, a, a magnificent word, greatness. You see what's happening here? 
as David has done this, what, what I'm saying we need to be doing. We need to meditate on God's Word, meditate on God, meditate on His character, attributes, and we're going to talk about His works in a minute. We're talking about His goodness right now. It's one of the things David calls out, and, and so many places are, is called out, His goodness. And David found wonder and joy, delight, at how great God's goodness is, just that majesty of it. Puritan William Gouge wrote that, When the heart of man hath once felt a sweet taste, the, the delight, the sweet taste of God's goodness... It is stricken with such an inward awe and reverence. Again, you see that delight that the believer finds in God's goodness. Still thinking about goodness. Through the new covenant, God is going to cleanse and restore His people. He will forgive them for their sins. And Jeremiah 33, after talking about the new covenant, Jeremiah 31... He says that in that day, believers, they shall fear and tremble. Why? Because God is coming with a big stick? No. Because of all the good, this is God speaking, because of all the good and all the peace that I will make for it. So, when he thinks about his people here, that they will have this fear, not in terror, but when He forgives them and restores them, they will have fear because He's so good. They will have fear because He brought them peace finally. And do you, do you get that? That they will fear because He's so good. Now, you may still be trying to get those to kind of line up in your brain. I know mine, I, can't, I have to keep, you know, get it back in line because it just doesn't sound like when I think about fear, I always think terror and I'm trying to retrain my own thinking to recognize that as a believer, I should fear God because he's so good. John Bunyan said, talking about that passage in Jeremiah 33, 7 through 9, he says, Jeremiah shows that in this true tenderness, softness, and endearedness of affection to God lies the very essence of this fear of the Lord. Have you ever thought about the fear of God that way? In this true tenderness, softness, and endearedness of affection to God lies the very essence of this fear of the Lord. There's a, a humility now toward God, not pride. There is a tenderness, not a coldness or a harshness. Okay, so that was an example of, of goodness, one of God's attributes. Let's talk forth now how to do this. Focus now, we talked about His Word, the first two, and then His character, three, and now four. Tremble and rejoice in God's works. Tremble and rejoice in God's works. And let's take salvation as an example of God's works, okay? In the last day, last days, God will bring in many lost souls, we find in Scripture. And how will believers respond to that? Well, Isaiah 60, verse 5 says this, Then you will see and be radiant. 
This is God's people. You will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice. And that word thrill literally means to tremble in fear or to throb. And one translation uses that, to throb. But it's this idea of of trembling in fear. You see, when when we behold in those last days... When God saves so many people, as He talks about Romans 11 and and Isaiah 60 and other places, we're just going to be blown away by it. And our, our hearts will tremble with fear, not scared, because this is a wonderful thing that is happening. That God is saving so many people all at once. And... And then he says that the word for rejoice literally is to swell. We will have a strong emotional response to so many be, people being saved. And how wonderful it is when one person gets saved. You think now there's thousands, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, millions, however many God plans to save in that day. Isaiah 60 says, oh, our hearts are going to tremble with fear, not terror, but with with a delight that is so intense and we're so overwhelmed that there's this this trembling on the inside because it's so glorious, so wonderful. That is what he's talking about here. Let's take a second example of, of delighting in his works, tr- uh, rejoicing and trembling in his works. Take forgiveness, for example. After you have sinned, and you've repented of that sin, some of these times, do this. Explore how great God's forgiveness is to you, the sinner. And stay with it until you're overwhelmed by the magnitude of His forgiveness. I don't know if you've ever done that. I remember one time, and I may have shared this with you before, you know, I was driving to to my day job, and... And I was just thinking about how God had forgiven me over and over and over again. And and I was so moved and so deeply moved by that that, you know, tears were, <laughs> were flowing down my face. I couldn't even see. And I'm like, okay, oh, i got to slow down. I might have to pull over here. I was so blown away by God's forgiveness. And that is what they're talking about here. To... Be overwhelmed by that magnitude of forgiveness. Psalm 130, verse 4, again. There's forgiveness with you, O Lord, that you may be feared. He ties this incredible joy of being forgiven to fearing God. We're forgiven so that we will fear. And this had such a huge impact on John Owen. And he tells about how there was a time in his ministry when he came close to death. And he uses words like, the horror and darkness of the affliction that he was going through. And and what God did is He ministered to him using Psalm 130, verse 4 in particular, and He uses now these words, peace and comfort, that God brought to him. And so what Owen did there is he then decided he was going to preach on Psalm 130. And, And so you have all that written out, and we now have it in his works. And, okay, Psalm 130 is not very long. Okay, he wrote 322 pages on it. You know how many he how many pages take up verse four? 
With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 227 pages on one verse. So if any of you ever complain about how long I take to go through a verse, you know, I'll point you back to John Owen. So, yes, he preached it. But he was so moved by it that he just couldn't get enough. And he's in there and he's telling us all that he'd learned about forgiveness and how that produces this fear of God. Well, ultimately, this all should bring us to the cross. Michael Reeves wrote that the cross, by the forgiveness it brings, liberates us from sinful fear. But far more than that, it also cultivates the most exquisitely fearful adoration of the Redeemer. That's beautiful. The cross should cultivate in us the most exquisitely fearful adoration of the Redeemer. A fear that has love, delight, and this whole... Uh, wonder and awe and trembling. And so as we come to the table, think about the cross. The cross is the center of our fear. It has to be the center of it. Because that's what has enabled us to fear God in this godly way that we've been talking about. But it's also what makes us capable of, of delighting in it. The cross reminds us to have this holy seriousness that we talked about last week. God takes sin seriously, so seriously that He put His Son to death for us. And there should be that sobering awe, but there should be joyful wonder too. Because when you come to the cross, there's there are times where the right thing is that, Jesus, I'm so sorry that you had to die so that I could be in your family. And I've sinned against you so many times. I keep sinning. Help me to take my sin more seriously, my obedience more seriously. But then there are times where we're just blown away and knocked over by, I can't believe that you love me that much. And that you would forgive me as much as you've forgiven me. Joyful wonder. The delight that we find in fearing Christ. Christ.